This is God's territory, and you got five seconds to get off. I tell you, you start counting five like a sucker. One, two, three, four. Suckers. Hope you're all having a fantastic Thursday thus far. You're tuned into Don't At Me here on FBI Radio. My name is Aya Batonye Abrikasa. And if you do subscribe to the Circadian Rhythms of Life, I hope you're having a great lunch break. So I guess you're probably wondering, what's going on? Who is this person? What are they doing? For the next six weeks, I'm going to be here with you discussing the intersectionality of identity, especially in relation to race, gender, sexuality, accessibility, class, and beyond. Like, we're going to be discussing everything. Well, as much as I guess you can discuss in six weeks. So you're probably also wondering, because you're probably wondering a lot of things, where did this program come from? What does this mean? Let's take it back. Basically, the whole premise of this program and what Don't At Me means. Don't At Me is something that they use a lot on Twitter, also on Facebook. And what it means is that you may make a post about something and you don't want people to respond directly to you and what you're saying. So you might say, don't at me after writing something because you don't care about what other people have to say. In regards to this show, it's quite an ironic title. I do care about what you have to say and your opinions and thoughts on whatever the topic at hand is. So please feel free to send me a text through to 0409 945 if you do have any hot takes on any particular topic i will try to engage with all of you if you don't have anything to say that's also fine everybody is welcome in this space i hope that we all learn something because i love learning new things and i hope you learn something as well i'm going to be talking with carrie who community organizer Um, an anti-racism activist who also works as a moderator online. Well, I guess volunteers her time to be a moderator online. So we're going to be talking about online spaces, doxing, digital activism, you know, in 2018 and what that means. But before we jump into all of that, let's have a song. So you have some time to, I guess, mentally prepare and take in everything that I've just sort of rambled to you about. You're tuned in to Don't At Me on FBI Radio.
So you're listening to Don't At Me here on FBI Radio. If you've just joined us, my name is Aya Batonye Abrikasa. That was African Head Charge with Dervish Chant. I'm here with Carrie Hu. We're talking about online spaces, um, safer spaces, and social media activism and engaging with that in 2018. So do you want to maybe tell us a bit about yourself and what you do? Sure. So my name's Carrie Hu. Um, I'm a community organiser and um, anti-racism campaigner. Um, I've worked on campaigns like Marriage Equality and Stop Adani. And then in my spare time, I eat a lot of blue cheese. So Carrie, what role has social media played in your life, especially in regard to activism? Yeah, so the role that social media has played in my life is pretty interesting. Um, so I identify as Chinese Australian and also queer, and I grew up in a space where I grew up in a pretty white space um, and a really, really heterosexual space. So um, social media was a huge reckoning for me, especially in this day and age where um, you know Twitter and Instagram and Facebook like proliferate a lot of um, political exchange and social media was a big reason why I kind of came into my feminism but also why I came into um, a lot of anti-racism activism and quite um, yeah just new ideas and also like it introduced me to um, meet new like-minded people who had like the same experiences that I did which I thought was really really amazing Um, and then from social media I um, have I moderate quite a few online um, spaces, um, like in the form of Facebook groups. So that's kind of my journey with like social media and how it's kind of impacted my life. Um, yeah, I don't know. I guess a question that we should ask, it'd be remiss of me to not ask this, but what is social media activism, just in case there are people out there that don't know what that is? Yeah, I mean, I think social media activism comes in a lot of different forms. So there is social media activism that is used to change um, traditional media. Um, so people can start new hashtags or a specific topic will go viral and it will change the dialogue that traditional media is pushing out or will introduce a completely new story that traditional media isn't paying attention to to bring attention to a cause um and then there's uh, other forms of activism where it's more to do with um online spaces and creating uh safer spaces for people with similar experiences to come together and share their experiences um yeah, I think social media activism comes in so many different forms um, and it's something that's really prominent, I think, in, the, in this day, day and age. Like, you can be a huge influencer on Instagram and you can post about um, something like Adani or something about feminism um, and uh, you can completely change or contribute to a huge political conversation that is happening at the time. Um, it does have its downfalls, which I'm sure we're going to probably discuss, but I think that's what social media activism is looking like in this day and age. Um, yeah, if you've ever been on YouTube and you see, like, a really, really long comment that has nothing to do with a video of, like, two people fighting about, you know, something that's happening in Albania, that is a form, I think, of, like, political discourse and activism, which I think is, like, I don't know, I think it's pretty cool. Um, I definitely think there's a dark side to that as well, but, um, yeah, it's something that I think is a really interesting... It's a really interesting time to be an activist at the moment. What do you think the limitations of social media activism are? Yeah, so I think there are there are a few limitations to 
um, social media activism. Um, I think it really depends on what you're what you're trying to do with your activism. So I come from an organising background, um, and do you know much about what political organising means? Or I think it would be good to explain. Community organising um, is essentially this idea that you... So you have a lot of people who come to protests, for example, and these are people who are being mobilised to come to a protest, but these people might all have the same idea, but not they're not connected to one another. And because they're not connected to one another, they can't um, build power to actually change something within... Um, within the Australian like political landscape. So what community organisers do is actually create those social connections with other people and then direct them in a specific way um, that allows them to kind of re reach a goal a lot quicker. So it's a lot of like kind of community building um, and it's a lot of sort of uh, coaching people to learn how to be leaders within their own community. So you kind of teach them what you've learnt um, and then let them community organise, like a really, really good community organiser organises other organisers. So because I come from a community organising background, social media lands a really, really interesting space of um, digital activism where um, I'm not too sure if you've ever signed a petition where all you have to do is kind of click your name and all of a sudden your petition is signed on to. Um, this was something that was like completely new in like 2008. Like no one had ever seen, you know... Um, all these online petitions being signed by like tens and thousands of people and like petitions going viral. And that yeah. actually had huge impact on um, like a lot of uh, politicians or even businesses. Um, another form of activism you can do on the digital landscape is um, sending like a letter to your, like an email to your MP. I don't know if you've ever done that before, yes, but like literally just clicking yeah. your name and all the, like you, all these like MPs get email blasted. That was like a really, really new tactic that actually only started in like 2007, 2008. Right. Like people hadn't really, and people are only beginning to, I mean, some um, organizations that haven't come from a digital landscape are just beginning to tap into that. Um, but what you're seeing is that because that style of activism is a, is becoming a lot easier and is a lot more accessible, it actually has less of an impact. So, like, I think that is one mm. of the um, the less effective, like, like means of, like, digital, uh, I guess, like, online activism where you still do need to uh, organise offline and you need to be doing things offline. But I think that you'd be remiss to say that you couldn't, that, you know, online activism doesn't do anything because it completely does like the fact that like feminism is mainstream is a huge um it's hugely to do with social media and the fact that we're beginning to um hear from a lot of a lot more marginalized communities um where we get to hear their experiences people are creating their own like online spaces or magazines or writing their own blogs and those things are going viral um and the reason why they're being published is because of social media and the fact that there isn't that middleman who's deciding to be published you can kind of be your own self-publisher as well yeah that's really interesting giving people agency to be able to publish their own work uh it's amazing it changes everything um so on that note we're going to take a little break now um and when we come back we're going to talk about online spaces what they mean um and allies and the importance of being a good ally and how we can be better allies you're tuning in to Don't At Me here on FBI Radio. Here I am hiding my emotions again. Here I am saying that I'm fine to friend. Here I am holding back the tears from my eyes when I know that I'm hurting. Here I am keeping the 
here on FBI Radio. That was the very talented Clarissa May, a Sydney-based singer-songwriter with Vulnerable. If you've just joined us, my name is Aya Batonye Abrikasa. I'm here with Carrie Hu. We're talking about online spaces, safer spaces, and social media activism and engaging with that in 2018. Can you maybe talk us through what exactly an online space is or what that could look like? Yeah, I think that um, Facebook has um, created, uh, th- there are Facebook groups and um, a lot of people, the way that they use Facebook now has been 
changing. People used to like post on their timeline and like share it with their friends. But Facebook group has actually allowed a function where you can add um, a lot of different strangers to a specific group. Um, and uh, that that's essentially what an online space is. So there's like a cool dog group and like a cool cat group. I do love those groups. Definitely. <laughs> um, so those are online spaces where you can you can talk to and interact with complete strangers um, on very, very niche and specific themes. But something that I think is really cool that has arisen out of that are um, spaces which are completely dedicated to feminism or are completely autonomous. So are only accessible to women of colour, people who identify as women of colour, um, trans people, queer people. These spaces are really, really new as well. And I think they've made a huge impact in the way that people understand um, social justice uh, within society. And, and it's also been a really, really empowering space for a lot of people from marginalised communities who didn't don't have access in real life to people who have the same experiences or identities as them. Because, like, what other space can people talk about, I don't know, racism or even feminism in a, feminism in a way that doesn't have some dude in the background be like um but actually i think this like that's what makes these online spaces kind of cool and that's what they function as i guess they i think they attempt to be safe spaces obviously not everything can be safe but um it's cool to see autonomous groups attempting to um engage in everyone's experiences and give and give them a space to speak about their own experiences definitely i think the like i think it's really empowering and i think it's amazing and I am part of many of these sort of groups that you're speaking about, including some that you moderate. Yeah, yeah. It's called Left Book. <laughs> right? Here for Left Book. Yeah, I'm here for Left Book. Do you, do you remember a time when you found, like, online spaces to be quite useful for you? Like, that's something that I'm also interested in as well. Yes. Yeah. I still do think online spaces are useful for me. Mm. I think over time, I, I don't know, it's a bit difficult for me Um in the sense that I've started seeing, especially in recent times, a lot of, I guess, over-policing to mm. a certain degree and people really starting to, like, there's this pack mentality and people are sort of attacking each other online sometimes within these spaces and spaces mm. are shutting down. And I guess on the other side of the token of creating online safer spaces, you have people sort of somehow infiltrating these spaces through the use of, like, fake profiles and then, like, wreaking havoc yeah. to the point that, it can sometimes have legal ramifications. Yeah. So I guess as a moderator, what has been your experience with moderating these kind of spaces? And what have you seen? What do you moderate for? Mm. How do you know if something is a fake profile or someone who's <laughs> faking it? I feel, you know I feel as if everyone on social media is fake. Like, that's is anyone true. really a real person? I don't really know. We are all curated profiles yeah, to us. That, that's it. Extent, yeah. um, uh, so when I moderate an online space, so I, I moderate... Um, an intersectional space and I think intersectionality um, can be quite a loaded word um, yeah. to define intersectionality it was coined by a black feminist legal scholar um, back in the 80s yeah and um, it's based on this idea that people with different with intersecting identities um, have um, interlinked oppressions uh, specifically uh, Crenshaw took on a lot of cases for black women and um, she found in like legal sort of like precedents they would look at the way that women would be like they would look at the way that black women would be discriminated against within the workplace based on like her blackness or based on the fact that she was a woman it would never be because she was a black woman and uh, I think that's how we kind of look at a lot of um, 
I guess, different sort of issues. We see them as being quite separate when actually a lot of these um, oppressions are interlinked. And when you have, when you come from a marginalised background and you have these interlinking identities, your oppressions are often playing off each other. They're not completely siloed from your own identities. So that's what intersectionality um, was about. And I think in current, uh, like, modern political terms, I think the word intersectionality has really, really grown um, into something that was really, really different to what Crenshaw intended, but also is something worth sort of validating and reflecting and thinking over. I think intersectionality really has become a term to look at this idea that, yeah, all oppressions are interlinked and um, are valid or and the experiences that you have come from a lot of interlinking sort of like oppressions that exist within society. So I moderate an online space about intersectionality. Um, so you would imagine it is really about platforming um, marginalised voices and identities that don't really get much space within dominant discourse um, or within um, any real spaces within Australia. I think like the main experience we hear about is from white, old, cis men. Um, so the, the space that we decided to co-create was uh, for um, people of uh, marginalised identities to kind of come come together. It actually grew out of a, a feminist space. So um, we kind of recognised that white feminism um, was kind of like the dominant discourse. So white feminism is this concept that you are for women's rights, but specifically for white women and the issues that white women face. Um, and then growing out of that was sort of like this main call for intersectionality. Um, in terms of what I do... As a moderator, it's really interesting. I think that the biggest issue that we run into as moderators is trying to balance two things. First of all, the difference between moderating a safe space and then an educational space, which is something that I think is always conflicting. Um, the reason for that is because a safe space is a space where um, people uh, from marginalised backgrounds come to so they don't have to experience racism or they don't have to experience sexism or, or ableism or fat phobia um, or any sort of like dominant oppressive discourse that they have to face on a day-to-day. Um, but then on the other hand, there are a lot of people who don't come from those communities who use our space to educate themselves. But I guess when you're educating yourselves, you're more likely to fall into the trap of either having people from marginalised communities educate you instead of just like Googling it, which is quite easy. Also or, known as emotional labour. Also known as emotional labour. Or um, uh, you um, find it really, really difficult to um, ask questions or to understand what's going on. Because as we were saying earlier, like you within these safe spaces, you can just really jump like 10 steps ahead within a conversation whilst there are really, really basic concept, concepts that people just don't understand or never have been around. Um, so you find yourself, a lot of the conflict that I find myself moderating is people rehashing conversations that have already been had but obviously these individuals haven't been a part of that conversation so you need to really kind of um you need to talk them through that but as a result a lot of I guess problematic conversations come out of it so people can say some like um things that are racist things that are sexist things that are homophobic and you need to kind of educate them on why that's bad but then that actually impacts on the safe space right so it's like balancing whether or not us space is supposed to be safe or educational and that's like the biggest thing that I found difficult as a moderator yeah yeah because I guess you'd want to constantly have transparency so you don't yeah. always want to take that like conversation either offline or mm. do it in private mm. um but I can understand how that would be very challenging yeah it's also interesting as well that even though so I just like run a Facebook group but when you're in a position of a mod people actually look at you 
um, as if you're in a position of power. Like, I don't know. It's like, I don't really think I'm smarter or better or in more of a power position than anyone who's contributing to the group. But because you've put yourself in a position where you're moderating, people really, really defer to you to like solve personal issues or solve sort of like online discourse or to be like the last righteous word on something. Um, And I found negotiating that power really, really interesting for me. I I think like um, some of our moderators um, don't really like being seen as being put in that position of power because it's kind of like I literally just moderated like a Facebook group. But um, I, can't, I think I'm approached a little bit differently because I feel as if even if this is just a Facebook group, like if you have a community of people who notice, recognise you as some form of leader, like you need to take up that mantle, you need to take up that responsibility. So when people are upset or people do take things personally or people expect you to do better, um, I think it's just part of the role and I think that's also fine. But it is like really, really tiring because it's a lot of unpaid work as well. Yeah, because it's a lot of pressure to be put in a position like that. I think you kind of learn not to take it personally as well. Like in these spaces, a lot of people have never, ever had the space to... um, I don't, I talk about how they're, be, they're being marginalised. I don't know if you... I remember the first time that I realised that I experienced so much racism and it was, like, when I was 21 and I was being harassed. So I was travelling in Europe for the first time with my Asian girlfriend and we just got harassed so much. Like, I think I get harassed, you know. People get... Har- women get harassed all the time in Australia, but in Europe it was, like, on another level. Um, wow. Yeah. Didn't and expect that. Where were you in Europe? It was just, like, in, in Western Europe, like Paris, right. yeah, like France, Netherlands, Italy, Belgium. Like, we would get followed down the street. We'd be yelled at. We'd be chased. Like, I'd never actually been in a space where I could really intensely talk about, like, my... Um, internalized racism or the racism that I'd that I'd faced. So I remember the first, like in the very first steps when I'm like really beginning to actualize your um, racism, you're all the way on the other end where you're like, everything is like awful. Like I hate, like, you know, a white society like is so oppressive. Everything's the worst. You really expect the worst from people because that's like, I feel as if it's kind of like the grieving process when you're kind of beginning to recognize that all of these insecurities and doubts that you have from yourself is because of a bigger structure that mm. was put in place way before you were. Yeah. Thank um, you, colonialism. Thanks, colonialism. <laughs> um, but then um, after some time when you've begun to understand it and learn it, you're kind of in a little bit of a better position. So in these online spaces, like people all of a sudden have a space to talk about like racism and sexism and like just there's no there's no no one policing them they don't have to like hold back so as a result it's really 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 emotional um and that can be really intense but I think it's really beneficial and I don't take it personally because I think it's a really necessary process that every marginalized person has to go through yeah definitely Mm. so I'm actually very interested um to know about how you sort of interact and interface with online spaces and social media and I guess, how you use them. Do you use it as a form of digital activism? You just use it to look at memes. I am quite partial to a little bit of both, uh, but would love to hear from you. Feel free to text through to 0409-945-945 if you have any input that you'd like to add or you'd like to say anything to carry or myself. Um, in the meantime, let's have a song. And when we get back, we're going to be discussing... Um, using the internet as or social media, let's say, as your sole source of truth and the dangers that silos and echo chambers can create. You're tuned in to Don't At Me here on FBI Radio. My name is Ayabatonia Abrakasa and I'm here with Carrie Hu. Very excited to talk to you once we get back. Made the sun a picture. 
tuned in to Don't At Me here on FBI Radio. Uh, if you've just joined us, welcome. Uh, my name is Aya Batonye Abrakasa and I'm here with Carrie Hu. That was Solange with FUBU, a beautiful track off her 2016 album, A Seat at the Table, that I am obsessed with. Let's jump into it. Thank you to the lovely um, Debbie Nguyen, researcher extraordinaire. Um, who found this incredible article from The Conversation. Um, They did an online survey um, of 2,026 Australian news consumers who say, 41% say they tend to think very carefully about expressing their political beliefs openly on the internet because it can get them in trouble with authorities. This is especially the case among young people Mm. with two-thirds, so that's 61% of 25 to 34-year-olds saying they're careful to express their political views because it could make their colleagues or acquaintances think differently about them. Mm. So in recent times, we've seen things like the way that Osman Faruqi has been treated on the internet. It has gotten very brutal because of that comment that he made. The way that Yasmin Abdel-Majid has been treated online because of the comments that she's made. In your personal experience, have you ever had something happen similarly? Because you are quite vocal on the internet, which mm. I think is incredible and power to you. But do you ever feel like you have to police yourself to a certain degree because you want to protect yourself? Yeah, absolutely. Like, I think... Um, I think I think those stats would be really interesting to see based on a breakdown of um, you know how many of these people are I don't know white men compared to yeah. um, people of color women of color. Um, I know that I personally online um, have uh, been doxed. So doxing is when um, your personal details um, get put online um, and then people take those details so that they can harass you. So. Um, I, I had a little bit more of an extend, extended public profile during marriage equality because I was running a campaign on um, engaging queer people of colour into um, the media, uh, traditional media platform to show that, hey, like, queer people aren't just white, they're also people of colour. Yeah, there was this, like, really weird narrative going on in traditional media that... Um, oh, we can't have marriage equality because of the immigrants. Like, conservatives were really weaponizing like, people of colour communities. Um, and, once again. Yeah, yeah, totally. And then on the other side of things, um, uh, there wasn't that much engagement with migrant communities about why marriage equality was important. So that was the campaign that we ran on. I had a bit of an extended p- public profile and um, I actually got doxxed at some point um, in that campaign. Um, there was, yeah, I just remember waking up on a Saturday morning and I had like all these missed calls and um, I woke up to someone calling me picked up the phone and it was just this guy on the other line like really aggressively yelling at me like oh you like um I don't I don't know how much I can swear in this podcast but um, a little bit. Go on, then. yeah he, he just called me like you like people of color piece of shit wow. <laughs> yeah stuff like yeah like why do you need to talk about sex online so much it's so disgusting you know you know nobody really cares like you should go back to like where you came from if you're not happy with it like really mm. just like classic stereotypical racist stuff that you hear all about like all around australia it was with my private phone number and that was actually the first time i, I think i hear all the time about people of colour being doxxed, women being doxxed for speaking out online. Um, It's really bizarre when you're actually someone who experiences it because, first of all, like, who is sad enough to just, like, call... It was, like, like 9am in the morning on a Saturday as well. It's like, mate, like, 
don't aren't you, like don't you want to sleep in? Like don't you want to like do something else with your time besides calling? Like oh, I just this is the time to harass this lady to wake up. Like it's really really bizarre to think that there are just people in the world who have so much insecurity and hatred within them that they actually can be bothered to try find your details online and then call you. Um, I don't know how they find the time, honestly. Yeah, I don't know. And, like it's like what are you doing? <laughs> right. Yeah, it's it's just like. And when it's coordinated as well, like that even, that just shocks me even more. Um, yeah, and, and I also like have written some articles online about being like a queer person of colour and my experiences as a like Chinese Australian and what it, that's like growing up and going through the comment section is just a way, like if you're really feeling masochistic, that's what you do. So I can really understand feeling silenced online. Like that was certainly an experience that made me feel not immediately in the moment. I actually found it really funny in the moment because I was like, this is really bizarre. But later, it's those quiet moments where you're kind of thinking and reflecting on yourself where all of a sudden you get some form of like anxiety and you don't really know where it comes from. And it's really wow. because that you know that, yeah, you yeah you just realise that the world's kind of really shit to you and you have to experience things like this because other people are awful. Um, yeah, I think that's when I th- women of colour, people of colour speaking out really, really get affected when they're speaking out against this entirely like racist and like misogynistic system um it was really interesting i wrote an article for the guardian called it was a review of single asian female which is a really amazing play yeah it was written by michelle law and um i wrote a uh, the reason why i'd written that article was because um I read a lot of the reviews after the, seeing the play. I was, like, really emotional in the play. To give some context, this is one of the first plays um, in Australian theatre that had only um, Asian actors um, uh, in, like, in theatre, like, doing a play together. Um, and it was huge. Yeah, it was centering sort of the... Um, uh, I should say East Asian, um, but it was centering the experiences of, um, like like three East Asian women and it really really mirrored a lot of my life and it was just like very very cleverly written but when I was reading the reviews um, I was really really surprised to find that a lot of people had kind of glazed over the racial element like it was like celebratory in the sense that like oh it's a different story because they all have they're all Asian but also this is just like a nice story about you know uh, this is just a nice story about a family or another review which you said something like sweet and sour review. Um, so I wrote, I based, I wrote like an article about my experiences of being a single Asian female, um, seeing that play and, um, finding it to be a really, really good critique of, um, racism within Australia and how I felt really uncomfortable in some of those scenes because it was like uh, white Australian theaters were like really, really Australian theatre is really, really white. So there'd be a lot of like, um, white, there was like, a, it was a audience full of white people and like four other people of colour, I think, in the audience. And there'd be, t- there'd be bits within the play where there'd be an Asian joke, but it's, but written and delivered in a way that's supposed to deconstruct the racism that, that comes from the jokes. And then people around me would laugh. And I wouldn't know if they were laughing at the joke because of, what it was actually trying to deconstruct about um, Australia or if they were laughing because it was done in a, like a kooky Asian accent. So I wrote an article about that experience and the amount of comments that I got where it was all these just like really, really upset white men who were just really shocked that they have different experiences to Asian women was just so intense. Like it was every single comment I got instead of like, oh, this is a really interesting article about race, about like the racial differences that 
people experience. It was just, I'm a white person. I'm a white man. And this isn't something that I've really seen with all of my other Asian female friends experiencing. So I just have no idea. Um, it's some of the weird sort of the, the weird things that you kind of just experience online where like you get um, any sort of like writing that you do or any sort of like, you know, research that you've put into anything just gets completely erased by the people who are like reviewing it or commenting on it. Um so that's like the less malicious and more just like what is going on side of like the internet. But I think it's like a sliding scale that um, prevents a lot more um, people from marginalised communities to write about their own experiences online because I do think there are real consequences. Um, I think, yeah, it's, 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 it's a weird time to be like like a feminist or like a person of colour online, like writing about race. Like on one hand, I think we have one... It's one of the biggest times in which we can really other voices are going to be heard and like there's a real hunger from traditional media and even like people on social media to really capitalize on it but on the other hand like it's a really really unsafe for us and we face way more consequences like white people can say a bunch of stuff white men especially can do specific actions and get away with a lot of things and saying a lot of things and their platforms will get even bigger from a lot of stuff that I've seen them say that has completely like destroyed the careers or like the ambitions or like the um the safety of like women especially like women of color yeah it's absolutely terrifying um especially when it's related to race it's very people are very quick to jump on that but there is this sort of double standard with the way that people of color namely women of color are treated as opposed to you know cis white dudes for example and it's very scary sometimes you know you just feel a bit of like at a loss with yourself and I guess the situation but thankfully we have fantastic online spaces like the ones that you do moderate where people are able to engage in conversations that validate the way that they're feeling and make us understand that you know there are other people going through this and although that doesn't make it better I guess it just makes it a little easier of a pill to swallow in that regards. But let's have a track. Um, and when we get back, let's discuss allyship. Uh, you're listening to Don't At Me here on FBI Radio. My name is Ayabitanye Abikasa. I look forward to chatting more when we're back. i mm-hmm. 
My name is Aya Bretonye Abrikasa, as you've probably heard me say for the millionth time if you've been listening uh, for the full hour. But if you have just joined us, I'm here with Carrie Hu. We're talking about um, allyship and how we can all be better allies. So <laughs> how can people, everyone, how mm. can we be better allies online, mm. in online spaces? I think that's really interesting. I think um, there was a really good... I can't remember her name now. Um, It was this idea of, like, decolonizing allyship. Um, Have you ever heard... I think I've read that. Yeah, it's really, really good. So it's this idea that I think um, a lot of the ways that we see allyship are um, from very, very, like, white male um, perspectives. Um, They tend to be quite... They tend to strip away the autonomy of, like, the group or the individual who um, we're supposed to be showing allyship to. Like, how many times have... I don't know. I know there are so many times when I'll say something that I've experienced as an Asian as an Asian woman, and this like very like benevolent like white person will be like, "Oh, that's really interesting. I really hear you, but I'm not racist and I'm not part of the problem, and I I don't really see that happening that much. So maybe like maybe that's not so true." Hashtag not all white people. Yeah, not all white people. <laughs> like I think that's a really really big experience. So um, I, I really like this idea that allyship is a bit of a loaded term and a better way to look at it is like being an accomplice. So decolonizing allyship is this idea that you don't need to show allyship with people. You need to understand the fact that all oppressions and all identities are actually interlinked. So once you understand that someone's liberation or someone's empowerment is not just within their interest and something you're doing for them, it's very much to do with something that will help you as well. Um, to create an equal society, um, you become someone's accomplice, right? You you'll do um, you're you're fighting the same cause, and I think that's something that's really really cool about like intersectionality, like learning about all these like different marginalized experiences, realizing it all comes from the same structure, it comes from the same same institutions, same history, um, and we're all, we're all each other's accomplices, even like cis white men, um, you know, um, are also like in very different ways. Um, limited by like patriarchy and once they recognize that they can be very easy accomplices to other feminists and other women 
Um, and I think, think the second thing um, about being, I guess, a better ally or accomplice online is just listening to people. Like, it's super easy. Like, there's, I don't know, like, even just listening to other people, like, even though I'm a woman of colour and I'm queer, I don't have the same experience as other queer women of colour. So I wouldn't speak over them when they're trying to tell me something that they've experienced or something that they've gone through. Um, and it's just a, such a simple thing that you can do and something that I think a lot of people don't practice or don't know how to practice, which I find um, really interesting. And because it's just, it's just so simple. It's like you learn that when you're like two years old, like listen to other people, like actively listen, validate kind of what they're going through. And it's so, so easy. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's very true. And if somebody's also just taking the time to teach you something, why wouldn't you want to listen yeah, so that or, you can be better? Definitely. And it's also like a very basic way to connect with other people as human beings, like actually like openly listening to their experiences or their own personal story to understand who they are right now and where they're kind of going in the future, like stripped away from, I guess, a lot of sort of like power dynamics. Like it's just a way to connect with another person. So it's just a not nice thing to do if you're speaking over other people or you're telling them what they're feeling is wrong because they're not they know themselves better than you do so just shut up (laughs) speaking of listening to one another carrie i do have one final question for you we're in 2018 the whole title of this show is very linked to social media uh don't at me um so many people i guess use social media as their sole source of truth Mm. i guess there is sometimes a danger with online spaces that can come with you sort of silo yourself um what would you say about that people not widening their beliefs do you Mm. think that people should engage with maybe social media that's more skewed towards a far right or like a right-wing audience Mm. in order to have a more holistic understanding of the world um i think that's a complicated question um and i think it really comes down to what you what your background is and what you're using social media for um i think that i don't know i think there's a bit of this like this weird idea that we're all in our different echo chambers and if we just listen to one another like things would be really really nice and a lot better when i think a lot of the times um people especially from marginalized backgrounds find themselves in specific spaces because um they're constantly they're constantly in a space that is like unsafe for them or they they face like racism and sexism or homophobia on a day-to-day basis um why do they need to listen to that side like why is that something that they you know I, I don't know i feel as if like i don't need to read an article about why racism is good or like you know why immigration is bad because um that's something that um, I draw the line on in um, being harmful to other people. So I think I think there's a bit of a line to kind of toe with that where I think that um, if you have specific values because you know that it's harmful towards other people, then drawing that line is completely fine. And you don't really need to open your space up to the other side when the other side, I'm just going to flat out say, it, is wrong. Like I think there are, there are certain um, things in which I just draw a line on. You know, I'm not going to read about why um you know Nairu or Manus Island is actually a good thing for our asylum seekers because flat out I just know that that is something that is harmful to the people who are there I don't need to read that other side um the second thing is that um I think it's really important to understand why the other side or um another I guess 
echo chamber um, thinks the way that they think. I come from like a community organising and a campaigning background um, and one of the things that we're trying to do is move people to better positions or change people's minds on things and to um, understand why they believe in something and what, what it is that they value and then speaking with their values is actually something that is quite useful. Um, I do think that it's a good idea to have um, conversations with people who completely who you completely disagree with just to understand what they're, where they're coming from, not not to change their minds because I think it's a really, really long, arduous process to actually change someone's mind, but to understand where they're coming from, why they're coming from that perspective and kind of what led them to that space. I think it's something that I find particularly important, um, not on this weird like microcosm of like the left and the right, but within my own personal experiences where my family are immigrants and um, for the longest time they had like really, really backwards ideas on... Um, LGBTQ, um, like an understanding of like LGBTQ communities. Um, and it was really, really strange navigating that space as someone who identifies as queer. But I also grew up with my family who faced multiple oppressions. They grew up in like communist China. There was never any education on what LGBTQ meant. So um, they came from a space where their understanding was completely limited. Um, and it was only by understanding that, understanding what they valued and how to speak to them within those values where they completely changed their minds. So those are like small examples where I think it is kind of a good idea to understand why people think in a specific way. But I think you'd go a little bit, I don't know, cuckoo if you try to change everyone's minds or um, have to expose yourself to ideas and ideologies that are quite harmful. Yeah, you just be exhausted. Yeah, you just be so exhausted all the time. Like, yeah. I'm exhausted just, Same. like, being alive. Right? <laughs> I don't get enough sleep. Job. <laughs> I can completely understand, I mm. guess, that point of view that you've just put forward because in recent times, and I'm sure many people that are listening in have experienced something similar where you've sort of gotten into an argument or disagreement of sorts mm. online about something that is normally... In relation to race or gender or sexuality or something along those lines or accessibility or anything mm. um, within that realm. Um, and I think sometimes it can be important to try to have those conversations yeah. to a certain extent. Yeah. But I also think it's very important that you have to disengage sometimes because mm. it takes a lot out of you. It is really exhausting and it's very, I guess, frustrating have, having to... Almost, it's like to a certain degree, prove your existence or prove mm. that what you feel is valid. Yeah. And you know, every day when you're walking and just navigating the sort of world that we live in, which is very heteronormative and very, you know, the dominant culture is white, it can get very tiresome to continually have to defend yourself. Totally. Which is what it is, which is the whole point of this show yeah. is to create some sort of platform for people that do feel that. I, I think it's um really interesting as well. I've kind of gotten to, into a space, I don't know, I'm in a weird space where I feel really scared about the rise of like the far right, especially in Australian politics and you see it in like Europe and um, America as well where, yeah, it is really scary where I don't, when I'm in an online space and I engage in a discussion, I'm not actually trying to change the person's mind that I'm arguing with. I'm trying to add, it in, add in a different perspective. So people who are reading who might be somewhat centrist, We'll look at it and be like, well, there's actually another perspective and that's actually a really, really reasonable perspective. And I think that is so, like, thinking from that perspective is just so much more sustainable and you know when you can, cut, like, just want to cut off a discussion. Um, and I also think that's really important maybe as a, an ally or an accomplice um, where you see 
a conversation that is just uh, just completely like incorrect and also denying someone's humanity and that isn't something that personally affects you like you can very easily jump into that space without getting emotional um and without having to, f- to face that oppression to completely negate those debates and um, those like ideas and even if it's not going to change that person's mind it will change someone's mind who is definitely reading because who doesn't like spend most of their time on social media scrolling through a massive shit fight (laughs) yeah (laughs) that is a really strong point and again something actually that gabby debbie and i have discussed with this show it's like you can't ever change anyone's Mm. mind like Mm. we don't have that sort of power it is always about sort of offering something alternative, like yeah. a different view, a different understanding. Yeah. And sometimes that does change somebody's mind yeah. simply from that. Um, thank you so much, Carrie, for coming in. We've made it. That was the first episode of Don't At Me featuring myself, Ayabatonia Abrokesa, and our special guest, Carrie Hu. Um, you know, next week we're going to be talking about cultural identity and that relation to art practice um talking to some fantastic people i highly recommend that you tune in thanks again for joining us for the first episode of don't at me here on fbi radio so i'm sure you're all wondering about the theme song as well that was created by the fantastic and talented jahasik also known as sanj kare the brief for sanj was exploitation film so i sent him some clips New York jazz hip hop scene and RuPaul's Drag Race, aka um, Monique. And that's what we came up with. Uh, but until next week, goodbye.